0: And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, I'm going to ask if you wish to open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, Um, For those of you who are newer and maybe don't know your Bible well, if you look underneath your chair in front of you or somebody near you, uh, we have these, they're called Pew Bibles, and grab that, and it would be on page three. Now, it'll be a bit before we get to there as I introduce this whole thing, but you can open to page three, and and you can see the passage which we are referencing. Remember also with the Bible, this little Bible, and by the way, if you don't have one and, you, and you're using one of these, feel free to take it home with you and make it yours. Um, it's important that you have the Bible. So uh, remember, it's divided into two major sections, the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, And when I say something's in the New Testament, remember that the page numbers start all over again, and so uh, you can find the book easily. I introduced this series last week, and I basically made two points. And the very first point was that there is no fear of God in the hearts of the people. No fear of God in the hearts of people, not just with those who might be called a non-Christian or those who are really, really bad, but the part that weighs upon my heart and is a burden is that within the visible church. And when I say visible church, I'm saying what, when you drive down the street, you see church buildings and you see people maybe coming and going from them. And on any given Sunday, people are gathering and they are professing or claiming I am a Christian. And that would be what is the visible church. But you must understand that just because somebody claims that, or you see them in a church, does not make them a Christian. So I will call it the visible church or sometimes the professing church. Usually I use that individually, the professing Christian, meaning this is a person who claims to be a Christian and will treat them as such. So the problem is that within the visible church, we see that there's no fear of God. And what, what is happening is that there's this death by a thousand cuts, each one of them small, each one of them a, a bit of a nick. But as the, the ble, ble, bleeding begins, it, it starts to take its toll. And the church at first seems to be unaffected, and we can brush that one off and brush that one off. And then there's this point where it's so weakened that the church begins to stumble. One of the things I learned as a pastor fairly early in my ministry was that people always look for the exception. Always. It's just natural to us. When you say you can't do this, they want to know the exception to that. How, how can I get around that? Are there loopholes? It's just within our nature. And so what happens is that After a while of counseling people and talking to them, maybe even confronting them, I would say things like, but here's what the Bible says that you, and you can fill in the blank about morality, immorality, sexuality, marriage, parenting, money, you name it. And I can say, here's what the word of God says. Here's what it commands. And then they claim an exception. And after a very short time as pastor, I began to change things. And I would look at some people, i say, you know, an exception proves the rule, but only if it's an exception. When the exception becomes the rule, it's no longer the exception. And what all I mean by that is, if God says that you are not the lie, and you've come up with 20 different ways how you can make an exception for it, you've now said that God is saying that you can lie. The exception, actually, is to, is to tell the truth. The Bible calls us to fear God, and yet we, we manage in various ways in our mind to not fear God. We have all sorts of exceptions in our thinking in which we are allowed to do this or that. But the fear of God is the beginning of life. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God conforms you into the character of God because he is your supreme focus. Well, the cost becomes very great. The visible church, which is the witness to a watching world of the glory of God as well as his saving work ends up becoming very dim and even lost because of all of these small theological compromises, and they begin to add up. And that's what we see and we continue to see uh, each year as it goes by as more and more compromises are made here or there. And all of this, beloved, results in the wrath of God something that's not appreciated nor feared as we ought. In fact, the very concept of the fear of God, oftentimes you'll hear people say, what is the definition of the fear of God? It is a a reverence for his name. That's not what it means. It means fear. It literally means fear. In fact, in the New Testament, the fear of the Lord is where we get phobia from, phobos. It is to be afraid. Now, it's not afraid. There's many types of fear that you might have, but every child who has at least a good father or a good mother knows this fear. They're very happy to curl up into the lap of their father and, and to be hugged and, and affirmed and enjoyed until they decide they're going to disobey And when they openly rebel and push against the way of their father, all of a sudden they see their father rise up, and he gets up off the couch, and he says, get over here. And you can watch the blood drain from their face, right? And and they're like, oh, I'm dead. Yes, you are. And you should be afraid right now. You should be very afraid. You have crossed a line you do not have a right to cross. That's my son or my daughter. And that's the concept of the fear of God. There is a joy and a happiness when you're in his presence and you do right, but there is this also holy fear that you don't want to do what's wrong because you know the Lord is also faithful to discipline severely even his children. But when we start making exceptions and moving the fence of truth outward so that we can encompass more and more people, and and we start taking what's the current phrase is a more nuanced approach toward things, what happens is that we bring about the wrath of God all the while claiming that we're fine the wrath of God is an abiding, ever-increasing wrath upon all of mankind. Therefore, all of us should fear it. And my point last week was that the only answer and escape is through Jesus Christ. And, and I, I still I have not developed that yet, and I still plan to do that, Lord willing, next week. But the answer is always going to be escaping through Jesus Christ, God in flesh, our substitute, that through his death, through his resurrection, uh, these two inseparable actions by our Lord, that they accomplish everything needed for life and godliness. It's what we need to be saved or rescued from that wrath, and we call it the gospel, which means good news. But this is where we end up messing up so often. We start out talking about the gospel uh, in this way. Well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that in one level, but it is woefully incomplete because it presumes so much. Who doesn't want to be loved? And so we, we like to tell them, well, God loves you. When was the last time in your evangelism, perhaps, in your sharing of your faith in Christ, do you speak of his wrath? And yet his wrath abides upon that very person who is outside of Jesus Christ, that this person is in a fearsome place. The frown of God is upon him. As we saw in Psalm 5 last week, he hates all who do iniquity. Well, that was my first point, no fear of God. The second point then is that uh, in this gospel, we need to get that right because in it we are saved from the wrath of God. Unfortunately, we have so many different false gospels being presented. And again, too many of them are being presented within the church, the visible church as they gather. So when you ask a person, what is the gospel or how do they know they're saved? They don't talk about the gospel. And they have different false gospels that they talk about. One of them that we looked at was uh, asking God or Jesus into your heart. Why do you think you're going to heaven? Because I, I asked Jesus in my heart. Well, that's not the gospel, beloved. Second one that we looked at was having believing in the grace of God. If you don't know, grace literally means unmerited favor, unearned favor of God. In other words, grace is something that is given to you in spite of you, not because of what you have done or promised to do. How many times have you heard people talk about they're in a fearsome place, they're about ready to die, and they say, God, if if you'll save me, I will, and then you fill in the blank. It's that kind of idea where where we need your grace, but then we'll pay you back. No, grace requires that you just accept it for what it is, a gift. But we have a false gospel so often of grace plus some other things. Grace plus you got to get baptized. Grace plus you have to take the Lord's Supper X numbers at a time. Grace plus church membership. Grace plus this or that. And then we talked also about the prosperity gospel and the gospel of social justice. Those were just examples, but if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to it. It's on our website. It's on our app. It's on sermonaudio.com. Just search for our church, and it'll be right there. But all of that was an a introduction to a short series on God's wrath and his salvation. So what we're going to do today, by God's grace, is focus upon that doctrine of wrath itself. And the way I'm going to approach this is as... As like we're tracing a river. Because in my mind, when I think about the wrath of God, I see it as this raging, roaring river that's flowing and ever-increasing. And I get that out of Romans 118 that we looked at last week, where it says God's wrath is flowing down from heaven against all ungodliness. When I was younger, back in LA, I had a Friend invite me on a backpacking trip up into the high Sierras, and we were gone for uh, for five days hiking up in the high altitude. And we started our hike uh, and backpacking so you know at nine thousand feet, and we were never lower than ninety five hundred feet except for that very first few steps. So we're at a high altitude, and one of the biggest and most difficult uh, passes you can do in the uh Sierras was this one called Forester Pass, which was at thirteen thousand five hundred feet. If you've never been that high, there's just nothing to breathe. And and you're carrying a 45 pound pack up these switchbacks and and at some point you stop carrying. You you're really rethinking this whole backpacking trip. But the problem is you're back there so you have no choice. Let's finish this thing. And you're climbing and climbing. But as we got to the top, we could see then down into the next valley that we are now going to descend. And it just stretched off into the distance. And way in the distance, as I stood there enjoying the view and catching my breath and and just giving thanks to God, you could see this massive river way in the distance. And, And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's really pretty. You could just see the white foam. Well, then we started going back down the long switchbacks, because we had to get to the valley below that was about 4,000 feet. So as we're walking, we're, we're around snow, because snow never, ever goes away at that altitude. And at one of the points where we had stopped to rest, I looked at the snow packed up against the wall, and, and it's dripping. And I'm looking at our path, and you can see these little streamlets, rivulets of water coming from that snow. And as you followed it, you could see it moving down the switchback, and then down into the valley below, it was turning into these, I don't want to call them streams, because they're too small for that, so I'm going to call them streamlets, just little, wide, about this wide, winding, meandering streamlets. And they're all over the place in the valley. And and as you follow them, they start to come together, and they slowly form a stream, And then it dawned on me after hiking down into the meadow and walking along our trail that that roaring river that we saw far in the distance started way up there. That I was literally looking at the fountainhead of a great river and they were all just a bunch of little drips. In fact, we got our cup and we held it under that snowpack and let our cups fill up with the freshest uh, water you've ever had. Well, that's what God's wrath is. As you see it revealed in the Bible, it starts like a high mountain stream. It's born out of the snows of old. It trickles, it meanders as it grows, a stream that builds and flows, and even at times roars and overflows its banks and destroys. But it keeps moving onward, always building, always growing, until it will ultimately empty into the ocean. Of God's wrath. What people don't get though is that they're in the river. They're not outside that river looking at it, they're in it. And they're being borne along. And the question is how do you escape that? That's all that matters. How do you escape that? So join me in the rest of our time today in this river called Wrath. Well, just as the snowpack had its fountainhead, just, that was where the river literally found its beginnings. The fountainhead of God's wrath is actually bound up in God. And this is something that is often, again, missed by us. It predates, God's wrath predates time and history, and I think that oftentimes we make the mistake of thinking about God's wrath by only going to Genesis 3, which is where we'll be soon. But actually, the wrath of God is before there was anything. Before anything existed, there was God, and where God was, wrath was. It's bound up, literally, the, the wrath of God is bound up in his person, in his essence. It is who and what he is. And again, how often do you think of God as wrath? You might think of him as having anger or showing wrath, but when was the last time you actually contemplated God as wrath? We, all, we love to contemplate him as, well, you know, God is love. But how often do you ever say, well, you know, God is wrath. That's kind of a bummer. Who wants to do that? But this is all bound up. Now, don't check out as I start doing a little theology with you, okay? This is bound up into a a doctrine called the doctrine of divine simplicity. Curious, how many of you heard that? The doctrine of divine simplicity. If you listen to our podcast, you would. Just saying. The doctrine of divine simplicity, what, what's it mean? It means this, that God is not made up of parts. He's not a Lego set. And you don't take this brick and this and you put it together and you say, oh, I have God now. So we can't say that God has love and God has mercy and God has justness and so on, And then if you take all of those parts of his love and this and that, that you can put it together and make God. You cannot do that. That's wrong. God is simply God. And he is love. But you can't look at God even if you could, right? You can't. If you're able to look at God, you're already creating an idol. But if you were able to look at God, you couldn't be able to say, oh, there's God, and oh, right here is his love. No, it's just God. God is love. But God is wrath. God is holy. All of these things are God, simply who He is. So we see in the Bible that His name is jealous. In 1 John, that God is love. But it would be wrong to make Him just one or just a few of those attributes. In fact, it would be blasphemous, but we do it all the time. God is wrath. And we know that because it says that he shows us his wrath. God, God's wrath came upon these people, meaning this is his being and he brought it upon these people. He brought that wrath and set it upon these people and destroyed them or whatever it might be. It's not outside of him. It's not that he became wrathful. God is wrathful. It is part of his essence. But you also want to remember that God in his essence, his being, is triune. He is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all sorts of error comes in to that. Each person, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is fully and truly God. But listen, listen. Hear me, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit, but there is one God. And so there is a key creed developed many centuries ago by the church called the Athanasian Creed that talks about the Trinity because they were dealing with some heresy at the time. Now just listen to this. But hear it to understand it. I'm only going to read it in part. It says, The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also, there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, they are one almighty. you see what it's doing? We tend to break it in and all of a sudden we have three gods, and they're all separate doing their own thing. There's one God. This is the doctrine of divine simplicity. And we can say the same thing about wrath. The Father is wrath. The Son is wrath. And the Spirit, wrath. But they are not three wraths, they are one wrath. My point in this is that God's very character, his essence, is pure infinite, eternal, holy wrath. And what God is in the business of doing is he is in the business of revealing himself to us, his creation. And the goal is that he is then that supreme point of glory in our lives if, as we begin to comprehend him. Why? Well, because he alone is worthy of that glory We don't praise him because he needs it. We praise him because he alone is worthy of it. It belongs to him alone. And to fail to do so, to fail to honor and praise God, is the great sin. This is what Romans 1.18 is talking about, about the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Why? Because God has made himself known to everyone in this room. And he's done it by his creation, the stars, the heavens, all of nature proclaims the power and the divine essence of God just by looking at the vastness of it. But that's one way. But the second way, Romans says, is that God has made himself known in your heart. And so therefore it says... Therefore, no one is without excuse. No man, no woman can say, I didn't know, because he will show you that you knew on that day. But he will also show you in absolute perfection that you actively pushed it away and suppressed it. And then what he will do on that day is he will reveal to you his wrath, and that will be yours for eternity. So the true fountainhead of understanding God's wrath is just simply God. It's part of his being, and like all things about God, it therefore is good, it's right. Whether you or I agree with it it has no bearing on it. God is a God of wrath, and therefore it's good. As creator of all things, He is the one who establishes what is and what is not. You had no say in your birth and you will have no say in your death. It is God who holds your life in his hands. A wise man or woman embraces this gladly. So that's the fountainhead, but then from where does that flow? Well, it flows in Genesis chapter 3. The beginning then of the river known as wrath is what we call the fall, the fall of mankind. And in Genesis 3, I don't want to spend the time reading the whole chapter because I'll go down too many side roads, but let me give you the essence and you can follow along as you skim through. That God had made man and he set man as supreme over all the creation. He established as man as in his image And then he showed him, this man's name was Adam, he showed him all of the creatures and it was given to him to name the creatures. And in the process, he found that there was not one like him. And it was there that he then created his wife, Eve, out from his own body. And now you have Adam and you have Eve, and from that, all of us exist. All of us find Adam as our father and Eve as our mother. And in it, he had made them without sin. He said that everything in creation at this point was not just good, but he ended it with very good. He made a garden, and in that garden, he placed Adam and Eve, and he basically said, what I just did for you in this garden, you go out into this uncharted wilderness called the earth, and you do the same thing. Go and have dominion over this earth, conquer, divide it, and make it like this garden. And in all of that, he gave them one thing. He said, do not eat from this tree. You cannot touch this tree. Well, that's where we pick up in Genesis 3, where the serpent, who is in fact Satan, he comes to Eve, not Adam, the head of the human race. He goes to Eve, and he he says, you shall not eat from any of the, any tree of the garden? Is that really what God said? And so she tells him, no, 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 we can eat of any tree, but this one we can't eat, we can't even touch, which by the way isn't what God said. He just said you can't eat it. And then the serpent goes on to say, well, you will, if, if we ate of this, we'll die. And he says, you're not going to die. So right off the lies against God. I might add, where Satan come from? He was created. And he was good and right. This is what he's supposed to do. This is his duty. And God will destroy him in his pleasure. But in this, all we know is here he's talking to Eve. And ultimately, Eve sees in verse 6 that the tree was good for food It's a delight that it would make one wise because the serpent had said, You know what? If you eat it, you'll become like God. And that's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want you to become like him. And so she looks at it and she starts to work it out that, you know, I'm going to eat this. And then in a little simple statement, she gave to Adam and he ate. And in verse seven is where the sadness begins because both. Of them, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loin coverings. In other words, they became ashamed. They became aware of things that they just didn't even know about. And the reason that this happened is that all of creation at that moment broke. It just took it and it twisted and became warped. And what we see there is mankind falling. And from that day forward, sin is our constant enemy. Well, God confronts them. He brings a curse upon the serpent. He brings a curse upon Adam, and he brings a curse upon Eve. It's interesting, when he curses Adam, he says, your curse is going to be that you're going to have to go and work and labor, and, it's, and, and the world, this earth, will resist you. It will make it hard for you. But, but his curse was external of that, and it was, it was out here in this world as he now, instead of as the one having absolute dominion and creation conforming itself willingly to him, now is going to be that fighting, kicking mess that we all know about, if any of you have ever tried gardening. With the woman, it's very different. The curse is focused within the household. For the woman, she now will bear children. She was going to bear children anyhow, but now she's going to bear children, and it will be difficult. It will be painful. And second, she's going to have a desire to rule over her husband. She wants to be the head. She wants to be boss, and the husband will rule over her. Hence, marriage counseling. It's just the age-old thing, and all, when you see it, all you're seeing is the curse, and it still goes every day, all day, for all of us. So everything's good. There was a time that we can but wonder about, for it's really and truly impossible to, to think about God having created something and then declaring it was all good, and it was devoid of this fallenness that we call life. You can take in your day the most peaceful day that was filled with the greatest amount of delight and rest, the happy place maybe you go to in your mind where activities were never boring or tiring, where your senses senses were maybe sharpened to such a degree that every smell, sight, touch, or taste brought great satisfaction, great joy. I hope you've all experienced maybe a little moment of that at some point. And then understand that whatever that moment was, even if it was a day or a year or maybe just a few minutes it is only a cold, dreary lie compared to what it was like before sin. Before that entered the world, you and I don't even know how to function without sin. Everything we do anticipates sin. We're always dealing with the fact that everything around us, including us, is in a state of decay. We all like to talk about what we are and who we are, but we all don't ever... Talk about what we really think about, do we? When it's really quiet and you let your mind go, have you never been shocked at how easily it went wherever there is? All things are good. The temptation came. Adam willfully ate, and because he is our representative, he is our, the head of the human race, he bears the responsibility so that when he sinned, all of humanity sinned in him. That's what we call the original sin. And that we carry that taint, every one of us, so your children never need to be taught to lie or to say no or to resist. It is what is in their build. As a human, because they carry that taint of sin. And it affects all aspects of us our mind, our soul, our body, our will, our dreams. And so all of humanity has followed its father's footsteps. That's why you're where you are at, because of Adam. And it was on that day that the drips began. It's so on that day that the drift started to go and form those little tiny rivulets that didn't seem so great, didn't seem so big. It was, it was not the same, but it wasn't so bad. But they began that inexorable move downward. All those streams then become a river. Given time, that's what happens. So by chapter four, we have our first murder. We're in chapter three, chapter four of Genesis. Murder. By chapter six, if you if you have your Bible open, just look over to Genesis six, verse five. The most. Comprehensive statement about the state of mankind. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man. Now, many, many years have passed, and, and the earth is filling up with humanity because we're still called to obey, to be fruitful and multiply. And it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So that's the extensiveness. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, the individual, was only evil continually. And I won't take the time to break that all the way down, but understand what the intent of the heart is. The intent of the heart is that which is before it becomes a thought, which is impossible because the moment you try to think of an intent, it now is not an intent anymore. It's now a thought. It's it's the fountainhead of what thoughts are and where they come from. And he says that the intent, that flowing spring of what's in your mind, it is only, not somewhat, only evil continually. That's that dripping. And it's not just external from you. It's in your own heart, which is why you can't get away from it. And you can whip your back, you can starve your body, you can do everything and anything. You can make bargains, and you can so work yourself to death, literally, trying to get rid of it. There's this idea of what I call evangelical monasticism. Kim and I, and it's my fault, not hers, um, began to flirt with that for a while, not that it was called that. It was the whole homesteading movement where you sit and you start to think, you know what we need? Because we're living in the hood in L.A. So, you know, you start thinking, I can't stand this place. And so you start thinking about what you need. And what you need is you need some acreage. and You need to just get away, and you need a cow and some chickens, maybe a pig, blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, we had it all. And I subscribed to this little magazine called The Quiet, uh, spirit or gentle spirit. That was what it was called. And it was some lady who did this in, in Washington. Her husband was a, a programmer and they were Christians and, and he worked for Microsoft and they had their little land and they had like a bajillion children. And I was interested because they taught you how to cook for, for one month for 14 people on 90 dollars. I'm like, I want that. So I subscribed to the magazine purely to learn how we could feed our family of five them for three months. And we did it, and it worked well. But she, she would ramble on about her various things, and I didn't really care about those things, but it became attractive. Like, you know, if we could just get away from everything, we'd be so much better off. And I contemplated, but as I was doing, I was growing as a Christian in my knowledge of the word in, in, in seminary, and also that struck me, I'm, all I'm doing is pursuing a monastic life. I'm trying to get away from all of these external things so that I can be holy. The problem is the, the, the sin is not, the problem sin that I'm dealing with is not outside of me, it's where? It's in my heart. If you know anything about the monastic movement of old, back in around the 300s, some of these monks would literally live on these pinnacles of rocks. And they have a little stone hut up there. And they would have a long rope and a bucket that they would uh, lower down. And the somebody would bring them some basic food. and They'd raise it back up. And they lived there. And they were attempting to become very holy and deny themselves and get in tune with God. And it looked really great. But what happened was that other monks would be on other pinnacles. And what they began to do to pass the time is hurl insults at each other. Because the real problem is not outside you, it's always inside you. So you can go and buy a cow and get some acreage, I I, I don't care, just don't think it's going to be better. The curse follows you, and the curse is in you. And as a result, the stream starts to get bigger and bigger, and so all these different streams are flowing from that first great sin, and they go downward. So in chapter 6, now he looks upon all of the earth, and he says, all of it is fallen and broken. So what does he do? His wrath overflows its banks, and he wipes out humanity with the exception of Noah's family in the flood. You want to think about that? Notice verse six, of verse 7, he says, I will blot out man whom I have created. Think about how casual that statement is, and also how massive that statement, I'm going to blot them out. In verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me. In verse 17, I, even I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth for what purpose to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. The wrath of God in the river. You can go into Exodus, don't, but just you could go into Exodus and you can read about the, what's called the Exodus event. You see where God wipes out all of the firstborn in Egypt. They just all died in that one night. They went to bed, and they didn't get up. You see the Egyptian army pursuing Israel out into the wilderness. You see God wonderfully opening up the Red Sea unto a broad, dry highway that all of Israel could go across to safety. But then you find that God literally brings and hardens the heart of Pharaoh that he brings the entire army into the Red Sea. And in Exodus 15, 27, it says this, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, not even one of them remained. Imagine Pharaoh going off into a battle with all of his mighty chariots, and he returns alone. They're gone. God's wrath just swallows them. You have in Numbers, Israel out in the wilderness, and they're complaining that they're not getting enough meat. All they had was this stupid manna from heaven that God provided miraculously every single day so that they could be fed. And so in Numbers 11, God basically says this. He says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat that you will hate it. I will give you so much meat, not for one day, not for a few days. I will give it to you for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you want to vomit. You want meat? And then he did that. And the, the line in the Bible is great. He says, and while the meat was still stuck between their teeth, he struck them with a the great plague. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. Or God is angry, and you need to flee from that wrath through Jesus Christ. Go and look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah if you want. Great sexual perversity of every type, evil abounds. So great was the evil that when Abraham is trying to prevent the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, he's saying, well, what if there's a 100 righteous men in the city? Would you still destroy it? And, And God says, I will not destroy it. He's like, okay, well, what if there's 75? No, I won't. What about 50? I won't. Okay, be patient with me, but what about 25? I won't. 20, I won't. 10, I won't. Not even 10 righteous men in the cities. And God's wrath came to an end. I mean, his patience came to an end, and he said, I will destroy him, and he did. And we still can't find that place burning sulfur hurled from heaven to earth. Smoke from these cities rose up like the smoke from a furnace, and it says they were no more. In other words, beloved, when God shows his wrath, people disappear. Just go away. It keeps doing this all the way through the Old Testament. Time and again, people, cities, nations find that as powerful as they think they might be in the eyes of all others, when God's wrath comes, they become a puff of smoke. They're trapped by their hair in a tree and then easily killed. The earth opens up and swallows them and they are no more. A seemingly random shot of an arrow pierces some tiny spot in their armor, and they die. Or a siege becomes so horrible that the people resort to cannibalism until finally the walls give way and they themselves are destroyed by the enemy. The wrath of God. And all of these many streams, big and little, of God's wrath continues throughout history, moving and merging into an ever-growing river. And in all of that, God, the wrathful God, says, turn from your evil ways and find refuge in me. And you say, that doesn't make sense. So you want me to hide in God who I already know is wrathful and angry with me? Yes. And you say, that makes no sense. Then think about what it's like as a parent. You have a child who's rebelling against you, son, daughter, doesn't matter, but I'm just going to say he, he just won't do what you keep asking him to do, and you are having to increase your pressure upon your son, and it is getting unpleasant for everyone involved. Nobody's having fun here, and you're pushing harder and pushing harder, and you will not allow that to take place. You will not allow them to live in their uh, disobedience without you being in their way. And as each new discipline falls on the child, what does he do? He becomes angry so often, doesn't he? And he goes downstairs, that's what I did, and punches the pillow and says, when I'm a dad... and they fight, and they look for ways around it, and they lie to you, and they resist you. They're fools. And as they do, your anger grows more, and it ought. This is sin in my house. I cannot turn away from it. You want him to turn, but he will not. He becomes bitter. Why? Why? Because of the discipline? No, because he loves his disobedience more. So what's the answer? What's the answer, young people, old people? Is the answer get new parents? No. What do you got to do? Repent and turn back to your parents. Seek their forgiveness, and you will find that their arms will open wide to you. They'll receive you. Why? Because they desire your well-being. But as long as you're outside of that, they will only give you discipline because that is all that you can have. The Father in heaven is the same way. In the New Testament, though, when we start looking at the wrath of God, it shifts. And so some people wrongly say, well, the God of the Old Testament is wrath and the God of the New Testament is love. Well, that's just called heresy and false. Wrath in the New Testament is described in a different way, but it's the same wrath and it's the same God. And the reason is the Old Testament covers thousands of years, and the New Testament only co- covers decades. And so it's focused in a different way. The Old Testament is filled with stories and prophecies. In the New Testament, it's filled with instruction. So instead of stories after stories of God's wrath, there's instruction about God's wrath. The wrath in the New Testament is looking forward to this day in the Bible that God pours it out. Uh, And so even though there's not a lot of stories, it's talking a lot about that day of wrath. So if you go to Romans, uh, go if you wish, don't, if, it's fine if you don't, because I'll be going very quickly. But in Romans 1, we saw last week that Paul describes in verse 18, the wrath of God is flowing down out of heaven, continuously. So there we have the wrath. God is continuously wrathful filled with wrath against ungodliness. In chapter two, he talks about the fact that uh, we are storing up this wrath for it to be unleashed on what's called the day of wrath, this unique time. Then in chapter four, we learn about the law of God, the 10 commandments, let's just say. And we find out that, oh, if we just keep his 10 commandments, we'll be okay. And Paul, the apostle says, no, you won't. When you try to just keep the law and that's how you're going to be right with God, all you do is build more wrath for yourself because you can't keep them. You keep failing. So you, you actually add even more wrath into your life. The, the law of God is never the answer for your life. Then if you went all the way over to Romans chapter 12, he warns every Christian that they are to make room in verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. You and I, we want to take vengeance. We want to get back. We're going to show them. And the Bible says, no, don't. Don't you? You show them kindness. You pray for them. You give them a cup of cold water. Why? Because you're going to make room for God's wrath and it's going to be much better. The wrath of God is all over the place. In Ephesians 5, we're, we're warned that no immoral, impure, covetous person who is an idolater has a place with God. Why? He says because, it's on behead, because of these things that God's wrath is coming. And again, then comes the command to turn from these things, turn to Jesus Christ. But all of these streams ultimately meet together into one massive rushing river as the time moves toward God's ordained end. Now, sometimes the river seems calm and and deep and we think it's all good. Other times it's boiling. But it's the river of wrath. And we're all in it. And this is where the journey comes to its end. The river ends in this waterfall that flows shoots off the edge of a cliff into an ocean of wrath. So you're you're thinking, oh, this is getting bad. Picture yourself, you're, you're trapped in a massive river. You can't get out of it because there's nothing in you that can get you out of it. And you are trapped and you're ripping and boiling. And all of a sudden, the last thing you know is that you shoot off into the air and below you is not safety. It's just a boiling sea of wrath. Now, when's that? Well, that's going to occur in the end. The fancy word is, it's eschatological, just means end, that last things. Everything up to this final point really was just a little tiny glimpse into what is coming. All of human history from that first sin of our father of old, Adam, all the way down through every one of those little streams where you read about in the Bible or you see in your own life. All of it flowing in building and filling until it roars off the edge of that cliff. The cliff called time. Repeatedly, the Bible talks about a coming time as a day. It's the great day of his wrath, it says. The Bible talks about it as the day of the Lord. It's the Lord's day, not the Lord's day that we gather to worship. It's the Lord's day to finally unleash the wrath he has been storing. For in that day, Jesus Christ will come not to save. He will come to destroy. He will come to judge and condemn everyone who has ever sinned and rejected, and you say, well, maybe I can escape it if I die before that happens. Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand. He is a giver of life and death. He will raise you up from the grave and you will stand before him. And you will stand with everybody else who has ever born and died in this world across time and you will be judged. And you won't be judged unfairly. You will have your whole soul unrolled before you and you will see it as God saw it. And every gossip, every bitterness, every lie, every hate, every whatever it might be, it's just there for you, and you are eternally responsible for it. Listen to how Zephaniah, don't turn there, don't even try to find it, you won't. The prophet Zephaniah He writes in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Now, just just, just quiet your soul for a second. Just listen. He says, Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, the high corner towers, and I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So with that in mind, turn all the way to the very back of your Bible. If you have this Bible, it's on page 192, clear in the back. And we're going to quickly look at just a few passages and then bring this all together. In chapter 6, Revelation 6, that's page 192, verse 12. Here we have the eschaton, the end. And the book of Revelation is describing that day when God now is going to make all things right and says, and it's, it's got a unique imagery in this, so work with it. He says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal of this scroll that has all these judgments. He broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casting its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders of the, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath Of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Do you think you will stand? Do you honestly think you're going to stand? Go to chapter 12. Just turn over a few pages to chapter 12. Verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Even God will use Satan as a tool, as an expression of his wrath. And what Satan will do on that day when he is released and allowed, he is going to come out to do as much harm to humanity because though everyone thinks he's their friend, he has been lying to them from the beginning with Eve and he will seek only their harm. And all of that is even part of God's wrath. Go over maybe one page to Revelation 14 verse 9. Here's another vision. He says another angel, a third one, followed them saying with a loud voice, "If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger." And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The lamb is Jesus Christ. And the smoke, the, the imagery, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, the wrath of God. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He had a sharp sickle and another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters. He's not talking about real grapes. He's talking about people the clusters from the vine of the earth. He threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden. You're being crushed underfoot by God himself. Outside the city, the blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And you still think you can stand on that day? You still think that? Will you not flee? Do you not see that coming? Chapter 15, verse 7. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And the rest of that time it unfolds, those seven bowls. The presence of God is shut to all in heaven, at the culmination of the outpouring of his wrath. Look at verses 19 to 21 of chapter 16. And the great nation was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon, the great, was remembered before God gave up her to give her... Heard the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath and every island fled away. The mountains were not found and huge hailstones about 100 pounds each comes down from heaven upon men. And men, do they say, I will repent now. I'll turn. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. No, the men blasphemed God because the plagues of the hail, because this plague was extremely severe. Sons and daughters, right now, who might be under discipline and you're sitting there and you're in your room and you're bitter and angry about your parents and what they're doing because you choose sin and you think you know better, you're no different than these people. Your parents bring discipline upon you and you sit there and shake your fist at them, you're a fool. Romans 1.18 says that one of the things God does to the people who love their sin is he gives it over to them. And one of those is a disobedient child, a son or daughter. And he's not describing a four-year-old. Young men and women, you are to live and honor your mother and father. And you say, well, I'm different. I'm not that bad. You're these people. We're all these people apart from grace. Hundred pound hailstones. You'd think that would knock some sense into you. No. Chapter 19, 15 and 16. And from his mouth, this is Jesus himself, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he might smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robes and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Who will stand on that great day of wrath? Beloved, the the wrath of God must be satisfied. There is no option. It must be satisfied. It is essential to his being. It is him. The holiness and purity of God demands that justice be served. No one will be able to hide. All things will be brought out from his searching gaze. It is a burning holy light of God. It will be revealed on that great day and you shall suffer The consequences, the Bible says he's a consuming fire. But this river, this river of wrath that's heading toward that cliff, there's a fork. And you have to understand the fork. There's this place in space and time. God called it the fullness of time. When Christ took on flesh and he became a curse for you and I, it's this fork in the road where God poured his wrath out on his son. The Bible says that Jesus, the Son of God, God in human flesh, suffered the wrath of God upon the cross. In other words, he didn't die just to show you a good way, a nice way, a, the fact that he loves you. He died that he might drink fully the cup of his Father's wrath for his people. He died first and foremost to be your substitute and mine to absorb and to suffer the fullness of that condemnation and wrath. And this eternal, infinite condemnation, which is wrath, is so great, so intense, that the night before he was to die, which was his purpose, he's in the garden and he's groaning, it says. He's groaning in pain. He prays. So the Ma- Matthew in his gospel records that his soul was so grieved To the point of death. In fact, sweat was pouring off of him, it says, like great drops of blood. Why? Because he, the perfect one, the sinless one, the only one in all of humanity who was actually innocent, would become an object of his father's wrath. So three times in Matthew, in that passage, he prays to the effect of this. My father, if possible, let this cup of wrath pass from me. But if it cannot pass without me drinking it, then your will be done. And it was on that cross that he drained the cup. And he cried out on that great moment some level of pain that you and I will never comprehend. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Why would he do that? To bear our sin, to bear our punishment, and to take the wrath that is ours. To what end? To what end? So that you and I might be able to read Romans 8:1 and say yes. There is, therefore now, now, no condemnation, no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who place their hope in Christ alone, the, the wrath of God is gone. It's just gone. It's followed. In whole, by Jesus, you will never drink even a drip of his wrath. You might get spanked to the inch of your life. In fact, he might even take you your life, but he will never give you his wrath. Each of you here, this is the reality of Jesus Christ. You are either in the river of his wrath or you're in Christ. That's it. You got no other options. To be rescued from the wrath which you justly deserve is accomplished only by coming to Jesus. So there's that old hymn, Rock of Ages, and it says it well. It says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I fly, or I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You do not buy into the false gospels. You do not come and let him come into your life and do what he wants and, all this is going to be great. You don't come and say, okay, let's work it. You give me this and I'll do this for you. You don't make bargains with him. You don't come and say, you make my life healthy, wealthy, and happy, and I'll follow you. You come as what you are, a filthy, wrath-heading, sinner, to the only one who can save you, and he will save you. You don't add Jesus to your life. You, add G- you come to Jesus so that he might become your life. You, don't, you come empty of all but sin, and in doing so, you come to the only one who not only can but will receive you and take from you the wrath that is to come. Lord willing, next week, what we will do then is talk about then that great salvation. If this is his great wrath, what is the salvation? And I'll try to unpack that in the short time I have, and we might have greater hope. Let's pray. Father, Father, Only you know the hearts of each of us. Only you know the inner workings of every one of us. You know our way. You know our paths. You know what we are plotting even as we sit here. I pray, Father, that you, through the power of the Spirit, that you would take hearts and convert them. Let them realize that truly salvation is bound up in Jesus Christ, that he is their wrath drinker, that they might this day turn, that they might put away all of the ways that they bargained with you, but then instead they would just find that it is you that they need and that is enough no matter what else comes. I pray that that would be upon all of us, that even as we go home today, as we spend time with friends or family, that we would consider that if we are in Jesus Christ, we are most happy. Let us find that, our joy, and encourage one another. Let us be bold to tell others that we know who are heading toward that cliff of eternity of the God who saves. In your Son's name, amen.